You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Florence Williams is a contributing editor to Outside Magazine, and her book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and an Audi Prize. Her new book is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Thank you for joining me, Florence. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. You know, this book is another big step in our increasing ability to quantize the ineffable. <laughs> We've always known for so long, it feels good to be out in nature, but how to measure that, how to prove that that is real. And that's what this book di- dives into. That's an interesting choice for you to make. Well, it is, but I felt like, uh, it. you know, we live in an evidence-based society and in order for this kind of information to really permeate the institutions, uh, you know, in the medical establishment, our schools, uh, people want evidence and they want to know, you know, what the science says, what's actually out there. Uh, so even though it may seem intuitive, you know, to you or to me to, that we feel better in nature, if there are ways to quantify it, I think it only can help make the case. This book was in part birthed and driven by your own uh, relocation from Denver to D.C. Talk about how that inspired your vision of the world around you and also of yourself. Yeah, that's really what launched my kind of journey. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, which is really a lovely, idyllic sort of mountain community. And I had been living in the mountains and in the Rockies in Montana or Colorado for over two decades. So about four years ago, my husband got a job offer to relocate us to Washington, D.C., uh, and the kids and I were, I would say, quite resistant <laughs> about this idea. But, you know, we, uh, we, we went for it. And as soon as I got to D.C., I just felt like this kind of stress bomb, you know, went off in my brain. I, I didn't realize I was so sensitive to noise pollution. Um, but that really started bothering me, the kind of gray, Euclidean, you know, monochromatic cityscape, uh, you know, kind of bummed me out. Then there's, you know, of course, all the traffic, uh, you know, just the uh, just the sort of general chaos of living in a city, too. And I started to really ponder, you know, what I had what I had lost and sort of what was missing in that daily, almost hourly connection, you know, to nature that I had in Colorado? And and was that contributing to my kind of new emotional state? You write, we are animals and like other animals, we seek places that give us what we need. I think this is a very important concept. This idea of always helps to ratchet back and understand that humans, though we dress ourselves in clothes and we pride ourselves as being, you know, occupants of spaceships dashing off into the universe, really we still have a lot more in common with that primate who has spent most of its time running around the savanna. Well, we do. And and we forget that. <laughs> you know, we forget that we evolved over millions of years outside, right? We've only lived an indoor life, you know, for the last really, I don't know, d- dozen or half dozen generations, not very much time at all. So our brains evolved outside. Um, we are built to sort of perceive stimuli from from nature. Uh, our our eyes are built to take in information from trees and oceans and rivers. 
uh, and, and, you know, the sky. And yet in our kind of daily modern life where we assault our senses um, with information from electronics, um, you know, from, from uh, email, it's a different, if it's a different kind of thing that we're asking our brain to do, and it, it sort of overtaxes the theory is that it overtaxes our frontal cortexes in a way that, you know, just makes us kind of fatigued and a little bit grumpy, even just subconsciously. You write too, and this is really interesting about myopia. We've been told, oh, you read too many books for so many years, and now uh, you were just talking about electronics, so now maybe the blame is turning towards spending too much screen time. But what you write is that um, the sun is what primes our dopamine receptors as we're growing. And this is a really fascinating uh, concept. Yeah, this was really a result of a study that grew out of the fact that in some parts of Asia, 90% of teenagers are nearsighted. So you look at pictures sometimes of these school kids, um, and and all of them are wearing glasses. And I think for a long time, people just assumed, oh, yeah, it's because they're doing too much close work, too much reading, or, t- or too much, you know, computer work. Um, but now, scientists are really discovering that it's actually the, the lack of vitamin D that is misshaping the retina kind of early in development and causing the nearsightedness. So it's just one of those, like, you know, unexpected consequences of this massive generational shift inside. This book, in a sense, is about what you call NDD. So tell us a little bit about what NDD is and the journalist who coined the term. Uh, NDD, uh, I think you're referring to nature deficit disorder, uh, which is a a term coined by um, journalist Richard Louvre. Uh, in his book, Last Child in the Woods, which I think came out in 2005. Uh, and, and he really talked about these sort of chronic diseases that we're seeing in kids today, like anxiety and depression and obesity, um, as, as really being the consequence of um, not spending as much time outside as we used to. Um, and it really took off. You know, I think it, it appealed to a lot of educators. It appealed to a lot of parents. Uh, and I think now the idea is more acute than ever because I think we're living in a kind of an age of anxiety really brought on by the intense level um, of connection we have to our devices, right? So parents see this, teachers see it, and I think everyone, we, we see it in ourselves, not only in our kids, you know, how plugged in we are to the extent that we are really more indoors than ever. And in order to get ourselves outdoors, you journeyed to Japan where they have developed something that sounds perfectly wonderful that I've never heard of called forest bathing. <laughs> this is this is so wonderful. So talk about forest bathing and the, the people that you met who were working in this field. They're just a fascinating bunch. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It was really fascinating. I Shortly after I moved to Washington, D.C. and had my own kind of urban freak out, I was fortunate to get an assignment from Outside Magazine to write about forest bathing and the science going on there. And forest bathing is this kind of, um, you know, eccentric practice that the Japanese are promoting, um, the Forest Service is promoting uh, as a way to kind of combat stress. So it does not involve taking off your clothes, but um, it does involve really opening up all five senses 
um, to the environment so that when you're out in the forest or on what they call a therapy trail, which I think is interesting in itself. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> I, I want to be on the therapy too. trail. I think all trails are therapy trails, <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, so they really focus on, you know, trying to pay attention to the bird song or what you're smelling in the woods, what the trees smell like, um, the wind on your face uh, or the moss underfoot. And they, and they even, you know, ritualize sort of the tea drinking and like drinking bark tea <laughs> or other, um, other herbs from the woods. Uh, and what happens, what seems to happen is even just after 15 or 20 minutes of doing this kind of pra- very mind, really, it's a mindfulness-based practice, uh, it, it really has effects on the nervous system, these measurable effects. So blood pressure drops, uh, cortisol stress levels seem to drop, um, heart rate variability drops. And then um, these subjects report just an increase in kind of, um, you know, good mood and a decrease in levels of frustration. So so I went to watch some of the science going on, and, and at first I was a little bit skeptical because I thought, well, you know, maybe this is an exercise effect, right? We know that exercise, um, it's so well established as being really good, good for us, good for countering depression, good for our health. Um, but the researchers kind of also controlled for this by sending similar groups of people to walk in the city and did the same measurements for the same amount of time. So they really seemed to kind of, you know, control for the exercise effect. And and they really only saw these relaxation or restoration benefits in the forest walkers. This all kind of winds back to a a theory popularized by E.O. Wilson called biophilia. Now, Bring us up to date on what biophilia is and where it's come since it was introduced by E.O. Wilson. Yeah, I mean, the term actually um, wasn't introduced by E.O. Wilson, but it was certainly popularized by him. uh, It was from, right? Yeah, it was Eric Fromm, who a uh, psychologist in, in the mid-20th uh, century, who really coined the term biophilia uh, as this kind of love we have, this innate love we have um, for for also uh, each other and, and also living things. And E.O. Wilson kind of tweaked it a little bit to really be um, really about other creatures uh, and other species. So plant species um, and wildlife species that, that humans, you know, because we evolved with them and we evolved in kind of a cooperative uh, and survival-based relationship, you know, with the world around us, that we are naturally connected to it uh, and that we have this instinct to, you know, to like it, right? Because th- this is how we survived, you know, by, by connecting to other species um, or by being able to identify them and, you know, just know everything about them so intimately. Uh, and, and I think E.O. Wilson has this really great point, too, which is that even though it's an innate instinct, we, if we don't cultivate it, we can lose it. So he talks a lot about this window in childhood that's really critical um, for forging this kind of natural connection we have uh, to living things. And if we, if we ignore it, you know, if, we, if we have a whole generation that's inside, um, that those kids may never really feel, feel that innate connection to nature. And this is why we like our kids to play outside, unsupervised, uh, to give them free roam. That kind of wild experience uh, is akin to, I mean, that's close as close to the savannah as you're going to get in 20th century suburbia, eh? Well, there's really a lot of interesting data showing that children's brains, their neurons really develop based on exploration. 
Uh, and, and to really explore, you need to use all five senses. You know, we have them. We're supposed to learn, uh, you know, by using them. Uh, and, and if we just put these little kids, you know, in these classrooms with four walls and a desk and a chair and a pencil, and we tell them what to do with that pencil, um, you know, we're, we're actually potentially really impeding their brain development. And so, you know, we're, we're humans. We're supposed to learn through play. We're supposed to learn through, through uh, exploration. And that's something that just the natural world naturally provides. And Lynn Isabel would have approved of my uh, inclination to, as a child, to go any place that would be, as you put it, seething with venomous snakes. <laughs> as a kid, I loved venomous snakes. And this Did you? Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> snake is a snake. It's... That's cool. A lot of people don't like snakes. <laughs> well, I have a 17-year-old milk snake in my bathroom right now. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. That's interesting. So that really developed for you as a child, like at how? At what age? Uh, when I was young, I, I was interested immediately in anything that would crawl around in the outside world. Yeah, neat. But now, and you say that primates who evolved in places seething with venomous snakes have better vision than those who don't. That's so interesting. And that kind of ties us back to the evidence, the actual evidence that we have that nature is good for us. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, it, it looks like uh, because we are primed to to see snakes in order to survive, um, our peripheral vision, you know, is really excellent. And and what's happened when we've interestingly, as we've moved into cities. Um, you know, our brains don't really change that quickly as far as, uh, you know, adaptation, but, but we are slowly losing sensitivity in those five senses. So for example, you know, in, in Washington, DC, where I live, everyone is walking around with their earphones in, right? They're creating this kind of personalized soundscape because they want to block out urban noise. Um, they're, they're trying hard not to smell, <laughs> you know, what's happening in the city. Uh, and so their, their senses are kind of just losing sensitivity, losing conditioning, um, which is a fascinating idea. I actually, I talked to the um, head of the National Park Service Division, or I guess a researcher in the National Park Service Division that's very romantically called the um, Night, Sky, and Natural Sounds Division. Oh, and I like is, that guy. I know, isn't that great? I'd love to yeah. work for that and, so and have a t-shirt that says, I work for the Night, Night Sky Division. But he's really concerned that, um, you know, that that we will not be able to kind of make out these subtle bird sounds just because we don't we don't try. And so he thinks it's really important, you know, that we we kind of exercise right those senses in the way we exercise other muscles in our body. I, I think, too, one of the things you do well in this book is, is that a lot of what you're talking about, it, it's on the it's once was firmly, I think, a spiritual idea, a psychological idea. Now it's moving slowly into physiological. And, you know, there's all these kind of Cohen's and a little bit of mysticism on the borders of all the science that is, I guess, getting quantified without nicely, without losing the, the feel. And that's something that I think uh, comes in the way that you wrote the book. Oh, thank you. I, I myself, I think, have been very influenced by poetry, uh, especially the romantic poets, um, you know, who did so much to kind of, I think, help people see nature in a different light, uh, you know, in a way that wasn't uh, necessarily about God, you know, or wasn't necessarily um, about fear. <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, or um, kind of distrust, but in this way that was really tied to the imagination and sort of important for people's creativity and for their sense of well-being. You know, Wordsworth uh, suffered so much as a child. He was an orphan, um, had a difficult childhood and really, you know, found so much comfort in the natural world. Uh, he wrote about it so beautifully. And, and in a way, he really, I think, just anticipated, you know, the kind of neuroscience that we're seeing now that, that does, in fact, show that there is this really profound connection that we have that, you know, inside our brains to the natural world. Uh, and one of the men who's studying that is uh, Yoshi Fumi Miyazaki. And he is doing all sorts of quantizing, measuring the cortisol and all the our reactions before and after going into the forest. And did, you went into the forest with him. So talk about that. Yeah, I did. That was uh, in Japan. And that, that was part of the nature bathing story. So I, I, I did watch and even participate a little bit in some of the studies he was doing where I had my own heart rate <laughs> variability and my blood pressure monitored. And uh, sure enough, you know, uh, my my stress levels really did come down in this forest environment, you know, even in just 15 or 20 minutes. So that was really neat to see. I also um, did some other experiments. I I um, I, I talked to uh, an immunologist who's convinced that the tree aerosols. Mm. Um, that are very, very prevalent in Japan, actually, from these Hinoki cypress trees. He's convinced that they increase our immune system, um, specifically our killer T immune cells. And he had me smell a vial of uh, this Hinoki cypress sort of essential oil. Um, and I, I, I had um, tested my blood pressure right before I smelled this vial and then after. And, and my own blood pressure dropped like 12 points. It was kind of amazing. Now, this is, uh, I think, what's interesting is because as Urbana gets so presently wrote back in the 1970s, human beings are all essentially just a walking chemistry experiment. So, <laughs> so if you want to get to it, understand what's happening inside of us, eventually it's going to come down to chemicals. Yeah. And these phytoncides and the terpenes, the pinenes, the laminines, um, the essential oils in, uh, emitted by these evergreens and other trees, these uh, are actually a physical connection and go into our body and co could conceivably change, you know, the what we're experiencing and change our own chemistry. How, has that come any further? Uh, good question. I, I don't think so. I mean, the whole aromatherapy field, I think, is still, mm -hmm. you know, very young as far as measuring the effects um, in, in terms of like actually what's going on on a molecular level. But there are some interesting studies. I, I think, for example, um, one scientist kind of misted a room full of infants with the Sanoki cypress oil. And, you know, measured that they had blood pressure drops kind of across the board. So presumably, you know, there wasn't, um, for example, a placebo effect there, which there could have been, you know, when I was in his lab because I knew what he was trying to measure. Um, but infants, I think, aren't really tied into, you know, anticipating bio biobehavioral effects. So that's, that's quite intriguing. Now, you uh, took yourself uh, from the forest out in the middle of the desert with a bunch of neuroscientists. Uh, who did you go with? What did you find? And tell us a little bit about the uh, Mr. Strayed and his many, uh, or Strayer, David Strayer, and, and the many devolutions and all the, all the people that he's influenced with his work. 
Yeah, he's a really interesting researcher. And I'll just say I, I, I noticed this kind of interesting difference between what the Europeans and the Asians are studying and the Americans. Um, you know, the Asians seem particularly focused on, you know, stress reduction. And I felt like the American neuroscientists, uh, at least in this group that I, I, I spent some time with, were really interested in how to increase our productivity. <laughs> So in a way, sort of the opposite. <laughs> How can we be better at multitasking and more productive, um, you know, by using na nature breaks, for example? Um, so Dr. Strayer specializes in uh, our attention, sort of the, the science of attention and our attentional networks. And he posits that when we spend a few days in, in the wilderness, what he calls the three-day effect uh, we really change kind of the activation in parts of our brains um, to the to the point where um, you know we're not kind of overusing that frontal cortex, you know, which is like our to-do list, our task, the task-oriented part of our brain. But instead, we're kind of going deeper into the sensory part of our brain, and we're taking in information at a slower pace. We're giving our attentional networks a little bit of some breathing room. Uh, and, and so instead, what he sees happening is that people become um, more creative. Um, he, he measured actually a 40% increase in creativity um, in backpackers who had taken a three-day backpacking trip. Uh, he also has noticed that um, people seem to forge stronger social bonds, you know, when they're spending that much time together outside that they think more kind of existentially, you know, about um, who they are, what their life goals are. And you certainly see this anecdotally. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of literature out there about how, you know, time on the trail has changed people, you know, from Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, um, you know, to to veterans, you know, who, who write about kind of walking off the war. There's been a long tradition of that. That's a really fascinating idea. And for me, one of the things that uh, I like is that you actually, um, in many ways, when you write the book, you sustain your thesis in prose with the way you write. And, and I'm quoting here, to arrive from D.C. and inhale the desert was like climbing out of a basement. Everywhere was sky and light and the unlikeliest colors and collections of wind-worn twisted rock. It was a visual feast. That's like a nice prose feast too. And so I think there's, you. did you find yourself as you were writing the book, um, essentially this book seems like a big process for you of quantifying something that you kind of believe before you went into it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I will admit to that. I, um, I certainly felt it, you know, in my own mm -hmm. life. And I, I, when I moved to the city, I certainly experienced, you know, what seemed to be um, this kind of emotional response to my environment. Um, I also, I grew up in the city. I grew up in New York City. So it's not like I, you know, I hate cities or dislike them. I mean, I actually love cities. There's so much they have to offer, you know, and if we think about the future of, you know, the planet and, and even humanity, it's really cities that offer us our best salvation, right? In terms of smart resource use, in terms of providing, you know, adequate health care, um, educational opportunities, especially for women. I mean, cities are really progressive, kind of wonderful places. You know, the problem is that um, we're not always thinking about how we develop our cities and how we plan them. 
and if you look at these mega cities, you know, growing up all over the globe, uh, there's just not a lot of thought being put into how important it is for people to have a place where they can kind of let off steam, you know, let off stress and, and reconnect to nature. You were talking about David Stringer and, and attention. I think this is very important for people to understand about humans is that um, like our digital cameras and our digital phones, we're taking in immense amounts of data. If you were to capture all that data, that's just like terabytes per second. By necessity, we have to discard most of that data. And this kind of takes us to this idea that David Strayer has of the three attentional networks. I really like this, the, the three networks idea too. So explain what those networks are. Uh, sure. He, he kind of divides the brain into these three major networks. One is the attention network. Um, the other is the spatial network, you know, which is just sort of where we are in space. Uh, and the third is what he calls the default network. Um, other people call it that too. Um, and that has to do more with this kind of creative, you know, long-term thinking uh, that we do, the sort of daydreaming that's not necessarily applied, you know, in the way our attentional network is kind of, you know, always wrestling with specific information and specific task solving. Uh, and, and so what he finds is that in, in, in these natural environments, in the wilderness, you know, after a certain amount of time, um, our attentional networks sort of quiet down and our default network really kicks in. And, and that's when some cool kind of life-changing, you know, thought can happen in our, in our minds. You know, one of the things that, that I thought was really powerful and important about your book is you address all the senses. And one of the senses that is not often addressed in terms of uh, how um, pollution, at least, is noise pollution. And I thought your your work on noise pollution was, was powerful and important to understand that we can't get away from ourselves now, can we? <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. And that, again, really grew out of personal experience. You know, I moved here and the neighborhood where I live in D.C., it's a lovely leafy neighborhood, but it is very close to the flight path for Reagan National Airport. And so there are these low flying jets that fly overhead many, 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 many times an hour. <laughs> and they just started driving me crazy. So I started doing some research, you know, and, and there are very well documented health effects. Um, due to living under a flight path. Most of that research has actually been done in Europe because there are such great medical records there. Um, and of course, they can overlay those on geographical data, you know, showing how close people live to these airports or to major roadways. You know, they know exactly what their decibel levels are. Um, and it's, it's really uh, intriguing and kind of disturbing work because it shows that like, for every five decibels of um, increase in noise, um, people require more uh, anxiety medication. They um, show more cardiovascular disease. So they're, they're, we know that the body's um, nervous system responds, especially just kind of like low rumbling <laughs> mechanical noise. Um, that, you know, maybe on some level, you know, our, our amygdala or our fear center of our brain, you know, thinks might be a predator, you know. And so even when we're sleeping, uh, you know, it's been documented that people's, uh, you know, blood pressure goes up, their stress levels go up, their heart rate increases, uh, even if they don't wake up. It has a sort of long-term chronic drip of, um, you know, stress added to our lives. Talk about the work of Stephen and Rachel Kaplan from um, Michigan, and uh, 
their the psychological distress and mental fatigue in the way in their work. And it's interesting, you know, if you think of nature as an orchestra, you can also think of our mental process. And when I was talking to Michael Gazanica, and that's kind of how he likens our mental processes as like an orchestra. Different parts of the brain will, will play simultaneously and some will crest up a little bit higher than others. So it only makes sense that we'd want our oral environment to reflect our mental environment. Mm, I like the way you put that with an orchestra. Stephen and Rachel Kaplan uh, are psychologists uh, at the University of Michigan, and in the 70s and early 80s, they noticed that um, mental health patients seemed to do much better when they were outside. Uh, and they started researching this and, and writing about it more deeply. Uh, and, and eventually they, uh, you know, they were really pioneering kind of this field of environmental psychology. What they found is that people seem most restored um, when they are in an environment that provides a little bit of fascination. So kind of an interesting, um, you know, beautiful setting, but it doesn't require too much um, demand on, on the viewer. So uh, this kind of what they call soft fascination, where the landscape is interesting, but not super demanding or scary. And that's kind of a sweet spot of existence. And then, and then they also started thinking, well, what are the other kind of features of a natural setting that make us um, feel happy? And so they have some interesting ideas about that. One is um, the idea of mystery. You know, so if we're in a park that has a trail that's kind of winding, um, that, that our, our brains seem to kind of light up with that. We, we like the, the element of discovery or mystery. Um, also, the sense of being away, so that we're, we're in a place that's, um, you know, not our normal sort of everyday kind of stressful office setting, that we're kind of somewhere away. So there's a little bit of a novelty kind of element to it. Um, but also an environment that uh, is compatible with our own personal sense of beauty. You know, so if, if we like the ocean, it would be near the ocean. Or if we like a deep forest, it would be there. Uh, and then when we have all these elements in place, um, you know, it just really tickles our happy box and our brains <laughs> and we respond. We don't have yet, but I'm hoping we will soon get uh, an equivalent of the Korean Forest Agency and uh, a man you met there at a park, Yun Soo. I think his work was really interesting as well. Yeah, Park Young Soo, um, uh, he was a healing ranger, right? I think he's one of the rangers that I write about. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I like that yeah. idea. I mean, like Japan, Korea has really taken off with this idea of kind of medicalizing space in, in the woods. So they have established these healing forests. I think they have, you know, about a dozen of them or will have about a dozen of them. Um, and and these healing forests are, are populated <laughs> with healing rangers who are specifically there to kind of help people feel better. And they lead programs, um, you know, and everything from um, like prenatal programs um, to programs for school kids or victims of bullying um, to uh, cancer patients. And so I, I went to visit this uh, one forest and I stumbled onto a group of firefighters uh, who were there recovering from PTSD. And they, they were doing this three-day training um, with a forest ranger. And, and they weren't doing things that you normally would expect to see men, groups of men in the woods doing. Um, for example, they were, they were holding hands and they were doing partner yoga. And they were making little floral um, collages <laughs> and, and having tea ceremony. 
Um, and I, I asked them, you know, it's like, well, how, how do you like this? You know, what's this like for you? And um, the men I spoke to said, oh, my God, this is just, it's the greatest thing. I wish I could live here forever. You know, I, I feel so good here. You write, too, about a man, Shin, who says what's needed now is better data on individual diseases and the specific nature qualities that really deliver uh, help. And I think that this is such an interesting point to be at because we now know, we know there's an answer out there. And we know there are numbers that will support it. All we have to do is find a way to measure those numbers. That's right. I mean, we're at the point where I think we recognize that, that nature does have these beneficial effects, but it would be great to sort of drill down and figure out, you know, are there certain groups of people who are most helped by time in nature? Um, which elements of nature are the most effective? You know, does it need to be a water feature <laughs> or does it need to be a sunny day? You know, and I, I think these are things that we, we still haven't really figured out. And then, yeah, in terms of which diseases, like is this best for depression? Is it best for, um, uh, you know, anxiety or uh, rickets or, you know, whatever? <laughs> we know uh, it's good for rickets. <laughs> uh the least understood of our senses, I think, is smell. And I find smell really fascinating. And I keep waiting for them to come up with a, a scale of smell, like from C to C, you know, like a mus the musical version of it. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, so talk about, I mean, and this is because, you write, smells hold power over us because the nose is a direct pathway to the brain. It's a primitive connection and you have lizard brain stuff. It's lizard brain stuff, right? And our brains respond really quickly within seconds of uh, detecting an odor. Uh, we, we know this. There are some interesting psychological studies um, sort of looking at consumer behavior that show that, you know, if we walk into a retail store where there's a scent of citrus, for example, uh, you know, we might spend more money. <laughs> uh, you know, realtors have known for a long time, if you can, if you can like, you know, somehow elicit the smell of baking bread, right? People are more likely to buy the house. Mm -hmm. um, so those are things that happen kind of instantaneously when we're in a new environment. You know, we know that Proust, right, smelled his madeleines and then, uh, you know, thought of his entire childhood. So it's a powerful sense. It's one that we don't often think about because we're such visual animals. Um, but it certainly, I think, plays a big piece in, you know, how we recover or how we feel when we're out in nature. So talk about your flirtation with meditation. Well, when I moved to Washington and got sort of stressed out of my mind, you know, I, I started to think, okay, what are the things that can help me, right? And I talked to my, my doctor. I was depressed. She said, well, why don't you, you know, after five minutes, she said, well, why don't you try Xanax, you know, which is this uh, anti-anxiety medication or Zoloft or, you know, try try some of these, you know, prescriptions. And it, and it turns out that, that these are so massively prescribed, right, to anyone who walks into their doctor's office, to the point where like one in four American women um, between the ages of 35 and 50 uh, has a prescription for these medications, which I find astounding, you know, after a five or 10 minute visit in a doctor's office, they're so happy to prescribe this. Um, and I, 
you know, I tried one, it did not um, do anything for me. And I didn't like the side effects, you know, which are, you know, significant. Uh, So then I tried meditation. (laughs) And again, this is something um, that you hear a lot about, you know, everyone is supposed to be meditating now, you know, it'll improve your alpha waves, and it will uh, improve your your mood and your relationships and everything. But what they don't often tell you is that, you know, you have to learn how to meditate. Uh, and that not everyone can do it and not everyone can stick with it. So I had this, you know, stick with it problem that I just, you know, wasn't really sticking with it. Um, and then, uh, and then there's nature, you know, which not very many people are prescribing, but I, I feel like more people should because it's accessible to everyone. You don't have to really learn how to be in nature. It's just there. Uh, you can have a good time and, uh, it can actually boost your mood for the whole day. And like anything else in this world, it appears being in nature comes on a spectrum. On one side of the spectrum, there's forest bathing in Japan. On the other side of the spectrum, there's metanspieto, I'm not saying that correctly, in Finland, which you describe as forest bathing on acid. (laughs) What tell us about your experience in Finland? That sounds fun. Well, the Finnish are so interesting in their connection to the forest. Um, they came, you know, much later to industrialization than the rest of Europe. And so they're still really connected to the landscape. Um, they still have, uh, Finns today still have parents or grandparents, you know, who, who have like a little cabin out in the woods. Uh, and they go to them often. There's a, this culture, pervasive culture of sort of berry picking and mushrooming um, and, uh, you know, cross-country skiing in the winter, long-distance ice skating. Um, There's just this wonderful, playful way that the Finns really engage with their uh, natural community. And of course, that's changing now. As more Finns move to the city, they're also, of course, spending more time on their devices. They're suffering from more obesity, you know, just like everyone else. Um, Also more depression. So it's something that researchers are really, I think, uh, very eager to study in order to prevent um, depression and to prevent healthcare disease. And among those uh, researchers, Lisa Teravinian. Yes, she is uh, an economist, actually, who's interested in studying the health effects of nature because she thinks it can really uh, help save healthcare costs for the country. So she has uh, spent a lot of time doing studies on groups, especially groups of women uh, in different levels of nature. So city parks, uh, city centers, um, more forested kind of wild parks. And she, she's come out with this kind of ultimately this kind of specific recommendation, which is that in order to ward off depression, uh, the Finnish people really need a minimum dose of five hours a month of being in the woods. So I thought that was kind of funny because it was so specific. And, and it's a continual five hours. The, the, you want that whole long stretch. The longer you you spend in the in the nature setting, the the more powerful the effect, and it also lasts a long time too. I thought that was really interesting. Well, I think that for them, um, it doesn't have to be a continuous dose of five hours. It can be kind of trickled out over the month. So, um, for example, I think she thinks like forty or fifty minutes. Uh, is is a particularly helpful interval, uh, and if you do that, f- you know, four or five times uh, a month, um, then you're good to go. <laughs> now, our most uh, present uh, sense is our sight. It seems that's what seems to occupy the most of our brain time, and, and 
you write about uh, the um, strange conjunction of fractal imagery and uh, artistic forgeries. <laughs> Tell us uh, uh, about uh, Mr. Taylor and his uh, experience uh, looking for um, a, Pol a Jackson Pollock forgery. Well, as you mentioned, I write a lot about the senses. And so in, in my chapter on vision, I kind of drilled down a little bit and um, talked about fractal patterns because Richard Taylor is, has, has discovered that uh, we, uh, our brains really respond to sort of a certain dimension of fractal patterns. Uh, and, and fractal patterns are just patterns that repeat at scale. Um, and they're often found in nature, you know, in uh, leaves or trees or clouds or, or waves, for example. Uh, and he, I guess he started this obsession because of Jackson Pollock. I mean, he as a kid, you know, he loved Jackson Pollock paintings. He figured out that Jackson Pollock paintings actually seem to be fractal, like they, they adhere to this sort of mathematical fractal formula. Um, although I think it's somewhat controversial, you know, whether that's in fact the case now, but, but he's convinced that's true. And so, um, a trove of Jackson Pollock paintings was found in a locker, uh, and he was called in to authenticate them. You know, were these really Jackson Pollocks or not? And so he applied his, you know, special Jackson Pollock, um, fractal formula <laughs> to the paintings and, and found that these paintings did not adhere to the fractal formula. And so he declared them forgeries, which was, you know, quite shocking and a big deal at the time. Uh, and it, it later turned out that he was correct, actually, um, based on chemical analysis of the paints used in the paintings, which were, you know, produced kind of after Jackson Pollock's death. <laughs> You spent some time in one of the European cities. I've been in Glasgow with Richard Mitchell. So tell us about Richard Mitchell and his epidemiological research. Yeah, he's an epidemiologist at the University of Glasgow. Uh, he's really interested in uh, how different um, strata of society kind of respond to living near green space. So um, he looked at, you know, large scale data sets from um, maps and health data and uh, found some really interesting things that, that people who actually lived closer to green space, um, irrespective of their kind of economic status, um, lived longer um, or uh, not, not, well, had lower mortality rates in those neighborhoods and also um, seemed to die less often from things like stress-related disease. And so, uh, he then he then he sort of pared it down to see how that kind of trickled out into different socioeconomic strata, and he found interestingly that the, it's the poorest people who live near green space who are the most helped by that green space to the point where their health outcomes you know start to approach the health outcomes of people who have much more money. Uh, and it just because of that proximity to green space. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, like, cause and effect, for sure. There may be other factors involved. Um, maybe there's better air quality, you know, in those neighborhoods. Or maybe there's better transportation or, or um, who knows, better opportunity. Um, it's very hard, I think, to, to actually, you know, definitively tease down what the particular factor is. But it was certainly intriguing. And so if you care about public health, uh, and you care about improving the health of people who are the least advantaged, green space actually seems to be a quite an effective intervention. You visited Johan Otossen in Alnarp. <laughs> Tell us about his work. 
Johan uh, is a, I believe he's a psychologist. He started out as uh, an economist. Uh, and after he finished his PhD, he had a terrible tragic accident where he was uh, struck when he was riding his bicycle. He hit his head, um, had a very, very slow, difficult recovery during which he was very depressed, very unable to relate to other people, including his own family. But he was fortunate to be in a rehabilitation hospital um, located uh, in a beautiful setting in Sweden, not far from the coast. And he found that he, um, when he couldn't relate to other people, he could start to relate to the stones and the rocks in this environment. And he would spend as much time as he could outside, um, just kind of connecting to these very basic elements of nature. The way he describes it is really interesting because he says he couldn't even really um, relate to trees, like trees were too complex, but he could really connect to these stones. And eventually he could connect to the trees and eventually he could connect to people. And he feels like his whole recovery was really um, facilitated and predicated upon this ability to be close to the natural world. And so he started studying horticulture therapy for people who are severely depressed. Um, and he teamed up with some other psychologists uh, to do some really interesting research and, and even to develop um, what's, what's a quite effective uh, horticulture therapy program thriving uh, now in Sweden. And they're looking at stroke patients, they're looking at refugees, um, they're looking at people who have just kind of workplace burnout and depression, uh, and they found it to be very powerful intervention. I I was really heartened to read so much about the Wordsworth in this book because I think that understanding poetry and understanding our relationship to poetry and to nature is it's really an important part of the science of this, and I think that. The science, the science must be informed by the art. And I think that that's clear in the way you write as well as what you write about. I think it has been very inspirational, um, and, and not just from art, but from science as well. You know, there are mm -hmm. many, many scientists uh, who talk anecdotally, right, about how they got their insights, you know, while they were in a park or while they were, um, you know, uh, looking at, at a forest. Um, I think it was, um, let's see. Mozart, who hugged a tree off it, like a linden tree in his backyard <laughs> in Austria, uh, you know, and um, Te Nikola Tesla, who, uh, you know, invented this alternative engine, uh, got his idea while walking across a town green. Um, you know, there, there are just many examples of this uh, all over. And, and so I think the science is now, you know, able to kind of image the body and, and image it outside the lab in a way that's, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, really lending, lending credence to some of these insights. One of the things that uh, exposure to nature can do is to help us essentially, I guess, open up our minds and find uh, the creativity within us, which I think there's a feedback loop there that um, when we experience creative moments that makes us, that helps cure us of the things that ail us. So um, creative outside, outside creative, it goes back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think it's hard to sort of document it from a scientific perspective, but, but certainly anecdotally, um, uh, it can be quite, quite powerful. I, I did spend some time with women veterans suffering mm -hmm. from PTSD on a wilderness trip. And, 
you know, I just wanted to see kind of firsthand what their experience was like. Uh, and, and, and some psychologists talk about the wilderness as having these kind of anti-PTSD effects, because when you're suffering from PTSD, um, you know, you're very withdrawn. Um, you know, you're closed into yourself. Uh, you have sometimes uh, feelings of isolation, um, feelings of intense anxiety, um, you know, these kind of nightmares um, playing in your head, flashbacks. Uh, you know, I think feelings of being sort of cut off from people around you, whereas a lot of researchers are now documenting that the opposite happens, you know, when you're, when you're outside in a beautiful place, that these feelings of awe, for example, make us feel more connected to each other, um, make us feel, um, like we want to open ourselves up, you know, to the world around us and to feel part of something bigger and part of, you know, part of the universe. And so I, I actually really saw this happening, you know, in this group of women who really started to come out of their shells on this river trip. We were in the largest uh, wilderness area in the lower 48 on the main salmon, uh, which is in Idaho, six day trip. Uh, you know, and these women said that they, they, they were sleeping better than they'd slept, you know, in years when they were outside. They were laughing, enjoying themselves. Uh, it, was, it was really wonderful, wonderful to watch. It's so interesting to see all the things that have become more both understood and because they're understood, we start to think they're more common. Maybe they were already there, but we, once given the language, we're able to name them more correctly, which brings me to ADHD and the SOAR camp, which I think is a fascinating uh, episode in this book. So talk about uh, visiting SOAR. Yes, I wrote about SOAR for Outside Magazine. Uh, we were so excited to um, find, uh, it's, it's a really non-traditional school. It's a boarding school, actually, for kids with um, kind of mild autism symptoms and also um, more severe ADHD symptoms. These kids who can't really function so well in a normal classroom. Uh, it's for, I guess, ages uh, or grades 8 through 12. And what they do at this boarding school is they spend two weeks in, in the field and then two weeks on this very wooded campus. So when they're in the field, they're really adventuring. You know, it's like an adventure boarding school. So they're doing um, canoeing trips or backpacking trips or rock climbing. Uh, I joined them for a rock climbing portion in West Virginia. And so the curriculum is really geared, you know, towards where they are. So I guess on this rock climbing trip, they were studying geology, um, they were studying some Civil War history <laughs> because there was a lot of that, you know, in this particular location. Um, and the cool thing about being in nature, kind of doing adventure sports, especially for a lot of these kids, is that it builds on their strengths. You know, the ADHD brain wants to process a lot of information at the same time. Uh, it's able to respond to stimuli um, and it thrives in that kind of environment. So these kids were kind of in their happy place in terms of their brains. They felt like the rest of their bodies could quiet down um, because their brains were, were in this kind of, you know, sweet spot of, of being able to interpret lots of things at once, which you can do when you're, you know, sitting on a cliff face strapped into a harness, you know, trying to figure out where the next handhold is. Um, you know, you're both focused, but you're also taking in sensory information. It's, it's, it's just where these kids seem to really do so well. You said earlier that uh, cities, um, just by virtue of many pragmatic uh, effects, are something that are 
clearly one of our best places to live. You're right. Cities are our most creative, wealthiest, and most energy-efficient places to live. However, we've got to figure out a way to live there without driving ourselves crazy. <laughs> and so you went to uh, the country that is a city, Singapore, which I've been to too. And so talk about your experience in, in Singapore. I wanted to go to Singapore because I felt like Singapore was kind of the fu- the city of the future. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the third densest city on the planet. So, uh, you know, people really live on top of each other there. And I thought, well, you know, this is where we're all headed. <laughs> this is where all our stores are going. And yet Singapore has also um, placed a premium on integrating nature into the city. They have an expression where they, they want to be um, a city in a garden, which I think is really interesting. Um, Lee Kuan Yew, you know, who was the, um, uh, you know, the, the head of the country for so, so many decades, had uh, been, spent some time in London. He was very influenced by Hyde Park. Uh, he believed that that people really should have access to nature and that it would help the development of the country, the economic development of the country, too, if it were sort of a beautiful place and a beautiful city. So he planted, you know, a million trees. Um, there are parks for uh, every kind of housing development and housing unit, not just in the city center or the financial district or, you know, these sort of high end buildings, but but in the worker housing, too, there are amazing courtyards. There are um, these these fabulous public parks with connector trails where people can hike and bike. Um, and, and there are all these city policies now so that if you build an office building, you have to more than replace the green space that you take up. So you have to put like a green garden on the roof and a green garden over the parking lot and a vertical garden, you know, on the side of the building and, uh, you know, greenhouse gardens inside the building. You know, so it's, it's just this kind of magical uh, city where there, there really are these gardens everywhere. Now, to conclude, you talk about somebody named Tim Beatley who uh, talks promotes a concept called the nature pyramid. What a great idea. I love the nature pyramid. Yeah, I love it too. It's just a way to really think about um, how we allocate, you know, our time in nature and what kind of doses of nature we get. So it's like the food pyramid, you know, we sort of need um, all tiers of it, but, but some of it is going to be more kind of basic and everyday. So at the base of the pyramid would really be kind of our nearby nature, you know, our urban nature, even, you know, the tree outside our window, um, or the sound of birds, you know, that, that, that we need to, we need to just be able to access a lot of it just for sort of every day, you know, get mental health. But that um, in the middle of the pyramid, places where we go less often um, would be kind of more intentional journeys to national parks or state parks. And then at the tippy top would be this kind of like rare but also important dose of wilderness that we need maybe once a year or at certain times of our lives when we're recovering, you know, from grief or trauma. Uh, and, and that if we think about it that way, um, you know, maybe maybe we'll all be able to provide the right kind of dose to everyone. The new book by Florence Williams is The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Thank you for speaking with me, Florence. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.